0: Celebrated winemaker, Ross Cobb joins us in the studio. He is a specialist in in Pinot Noir. We talk about the Sonoma Coast region and soil and the science and also the creativity it takes to make a beautiful wine. I think you're gonna enjoy it. (music) Ross, uh, hey, listen, thank you so much for coming. I had the pleasure of having some of your beautiful wine with my buddy Matthew Perry. Yes, and and I asked him, uh, hey, I've been dying to have a um, a winemaker on our podcast and kind of explore the creativity that goes behind winemaking, and he introduced us. So cheers to Matthew for that.
1: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, man. Um, so yeah, and here we are. So I want to. I would do it. This, this is what I'm. So interested in, in all these things that are made and handcrafted, and in your case, I guess, so much science. I want to know how it's all made from the creative perspective. And, you know, do you, to, to explain that to us, do you need to start with uh, the science, or can you just launch into, you know, the, the beginning, or sorry, the end in mind? Like, how do you, what's your process?
1: Well, winemaking for me is started with the soil. Uh because that's where the vines are living and yeah. this, the microclimate, the climate yeah. and the, the wine is basically made the, the style of the wine, the, you know, subtleties of the wine, the secondary aromas of the wine are uh-huh. made in, in the place. So the soil and the climate that that uh-huh. vineyard is, plant, is planted is going uh-huh. to really drive the style of the wine of the complexity. So Cobb
0: wine, uh, Cobb wines, Mm -hmm. where is, where are you growing?
1: So we're up in Occidental area. So West Sonoma coast by Bodega Bay. So the little coastlands vineyard that my mother and father planted back in 89 Uh is right on the hilltop above Bodega Bay, just North of Bodega Bay, Salmon Creek officially. Yeah. So you can see the from the vineyard up there, we're at about really? 1,150 feet. You can see Bodega Head, yeah. and you can see the rocks off of Jenner. So we're just kind of just oh south head. of the Russian River mouth up at about 1,150 uh,
0: feet. You grew up there too?
1: Well, I actually grew up in the Bay Area here. And my father worked here in the city, and my mom is an artist and worked in art um, magazine layout. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then when I graduated from high school in My mother and father moved up to Sonoma County and planted this little vineyard and built a house And then had been living up there ever since
0: so I know that that area pretty well Mm -hmm. Uh, one of my uh, our first houses we uh, bought and renovated We say because we couldn't afford anything in San Francisco. We bought this little shack in Jenner, California Mm -hmm. so I've driven all over those roads. There's a road that comes from Occidental down to the one What is that? Coleman
1: Valley Road. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So we're right off of Coleman Valley Road. So you take, to get to our place, you go from Occidental on Coleman Valley Road going west. Mm -hmm. And then instead of taking that sharp right toward the coast Mm -hmm. down the valley there, you go straight and it turns into Joy Road. Mm -hmm. And Joy Road, literally 30 seconds, you take the first right Mm -hmm. on Fitzpatrick Lane. Uh And Fitzpatrick Lane kind of parallels Coleman Valley. It goes out. And it doesn't go through, uh, but about three quarters of the way down Fitzpatrick, yeah. you'll go right into our property, which is. I can
0: imagine this this landscape. Like I know that maybe some listeners that are, uh, you know, not uh, Bay-centric or maybe not hyper, Bodega Bay-centric, but that's so fascinating to me. It's gorgeous. So then that that wind and that air, and that's, that's a big difference from other. Uh, regions. What does that do to
1: your wine? Well, yeah, it's a very, very similar climate to San Francisco, you know, uh-huh. or Bolinas yes. Ridge above, you know, Bolinas and you know, Mount Tam, just another what thirty miles north. Mm-hmm. But we, um, yeah, the the we have the fog and the wind and the kind of drizzly fog, just like mm-hmm. you get in the sunset here in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and it the vines just are just pummeled by fog and wind wow. and you know dripping fog. All summer long, as you know. You're right. Uh, spring is actually pretty nice, and fall is pretty nice. Yeah. So we actually have a great climate for ripening the grapes in fall. Uh
0: huh. Oh yeah, yeah. But
1: we have a challenging summer because it's just it's foggy, and then it's sunny, and then it's foggy, and so the vines kind of stop and start and stop and start uh-huh. and stop and start. Our biggest challenge is the fog during flower. So we have a flower uh-huh. time, and kind of just get approaching that right now in May. Yeah. And an early, early to late June, depending on the season, uh-huh. we'll get flower and the vines want to pollinate. And, yeah. and it's, the pollination is dependent on the climate. So yeah. if it's cold and foggy, we get very little fruit. So we'll mm-hmm. get these really low-yielding, high-quality years. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have kind of moderate years when the sun is out during flower. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the most challenging part of us growing out there is it's uh-huh. this heavy fog during flower.
0: So explain flower. It must be like when, you know, it, it's the part of, of a bud or something that just pops and that that's actually what turns into grapes eventually?
1: Or... Yeah, well, any fruiting, yeah. you know, plant has, it, it'll flower and then that, yeah. is, that has the... Um, literally, literally flowers. Literally flowers. Yeah. And each, there's like, you can imagine a bunch of grapes that you're buying, you know, at the store. You know, a bunch of grapes will be, uh-huh. maybe a hundred berries will be on that. Yes. That grape cluster, a you know, mm-hmm. bunch well, during the flower time, it's just a, it's a hundred flowers. Yeah. And they'll all kind of pop like popcorn. Literally, it'll slowly, the flowers will slowly open as the as the climate warms up. Uh-huh. And then the flower will pollinate. Yeah. And it's actually, they're hermaphrodites. they actually self-pollinate. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. They don't it's rely on, exactly. Uh-huh. So they'll, 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 it's relying on the climate. And, and if it's rainy, then the flower, the caps of the flower actually can suffocate the, the pollen uh-huh. tube. So you end up with. With what's called shatter, and shatter is the incomplete pollination, and shatter will basically determine how much, how many berries are actually going to survive and become full-sized, plump berries, you know, at harvest time. So we'll end up having 50% shatter or 70% shatter, and you can imagine, 70% shatter means you only have 30% of the actual grapes on that bunch. It's kind of like the metric system. We have 100 berries basically, and each one weighs about. 1 gram, uh-huh. and so you end up with a hundred gram bunch or you end up with a 30 gram bunch or right. a 50 gram bunch and that That's basically determines our yield or how much wine we can make per acre out in the vineyard Yeah.
0: So the business of making, you know wine, I'm sure that what do you water your vineyard?
1: No, yeah
0: no. Plenty of moisture.
1: Yeah, We well we get a lot of rain and in, in the winter of course. Yes as we did this year we had almost 85 inches this winter mm-hmm. um, but We've had years where it's 35, which is kind of a drought year, which is still Mm -hmm. enormous. Um, The summertime, the vines are the roots are so deep. How how deep? 25
0: feet.
1: Yeah, 20, 25 feet, depending on the soil. If you have soil that's sandy, kind of loamy soil, the roots will just keep going down forever. You can get roots that are, you know, 40, 50 feet deep. That's incredible, right? And then no, like they're completely illogical. In, in, independent. They, they're, you know, they're, they don't need any irrigation, of course, yeah. unless there's just sand and no water down there. But yeah. um, we, we're up at 1100 feet, these yeah. vines that my mother and father planted at Coastlands Vineyard. And it's alluvial clay loam soil, sandy clay loam soil. And if you're a gardener you know that's great soil has like mm. water holding capacity nutrient mm. holding capacity which is that clay mm-hmm. and then it has porosity which is that sand and the silt so it so, allows for air and flow and, yeah. and and for the roots to scavenge for water and nutrients uh-huh. so we have a unique vineyard up there because it's up at 1150 feet so it gets a lot above uh, most of the fog not a lot of it but mm-hmm. most of the fog it gets pummeled by the wind in the fog mm-hmm. But it also has this really beautiful soil up mm. at elevation. Mm-hmm. You usually, You have nice, beautiful alluvial soil at kind of sea level or, you know, yeah. down in the river valleys. Well, this is a unique area where it was uplifted marine sedimentary soil. So it used to be along yeah. that uh, big yeah. kind of it used to be the beachfront or an yeah, alluvial yeah. river or, you know, wherever it was before it got lifted. Yes. And it was lifted during the, you know, the uplifting of the Pacific. Yeah. The, the ocean plate was going underneath the. Continental plate okay. kind of lifted it up there. So
0: uh, time stamping that like what one million years ago?
1: Yeah, something. something. I think it was more than that. I don't. I, my geog- geography million. is a little rusty. I'm gonna Google it later. It's, I think it's probably more like 100
0: million, but maybe yeah. it's 50. I have a strange some question. Will, Someone will correct um, us. We've all seen the, the the vines as they they're barky and they're like above soil. What do what color are the roots if you dug them up? Twenty feet down or four feet down,
1: they're they're kind of white, just uh-huh. like you'd imagine. Uh-huh. There's not there, there's no there's there's they're they're kind, soft, of, kind of soft kind of they. Like you know? Well, there's there's two types of root. There's a, a two root system in grapevines. There's a the top, it's a ball, and then there's the tap root that goes down. Deep. Oh yeah. So the ball is is what you kind of imagine that fibrous. Oh, yeah, ball yeah. that's that's all that's only. You know six inches to two feet below the surfaces depending on the soil and that's what's scavenging a lot of the surface water uh-huh. and nutrients and most of the nutrients come from that top area uh-huh. and then you have the tap root that goes all deep down and that's the one that'll go down and so more rigid
0: larger depending on the vine size and it goes well, down do you think the diameter of that tap root is well if
1: if you've got the trunk of the vine being you know these are like 30 year old vines we have there and that's about five five six eight inches i mean some of them look like trunks you know small trees and those uh the roots are gonna be probably half that size breaking down you know so three four or five inches in width yeah oh wow yeah pretty significant Uh, but yeah so once you get the roots down deep into that you know soil you're you're independent, so you don't need to irrigate. So it takes, you know, yeah. five, seven, ten 10 years where you're using a drip system mm-hmm. and uh, use a drip system to kind of train the vines to go deep. Mm. So you do these very long um, stretched out irrigation cycles. So you'll water for maybe three or four hours and the water will drip down slowly. It's a little drip and it slowly seeps, you know, three, four feet into the soil and it forces those roots down and then you stop for a month. Uh-huh. And it's called deficit irrigation. You're training the roots to go deeper and deeper. And then once you've trained them versus just constantly irrigating them on the surface, uh-huh. once they get, they get trained down, then you can wean
0: them off of the water and so mm-hmm. you can actually dry farm with, without irrigation. The reason I was bringing that up it, it has to do with production and yield like some people will, uh, you know, Balloon their grapes toward the end to get more massing, right? right. More water in the in the grapes. And, you know, my limited expertise, or little, limited knowledge, would be that, that makes a weaker wine or weaker fruit. Yeah, right.
1: It's like it's like if you're growing strawberries and or I mean uh, t- tomatoes and you overwater them. Yeah, so. I mean, you're you're getting selfish and you're like, oh, I'm gonna you know Biggest keep watering, problem. or you're just basically you know, to, like, addicted to irrigating your tomatoes. Yeah. They'll end up. It doesn't take a you know a gardener one year to realize okay too much water the <laughs> tomatoes taste like nothing. It's the same thing with grapevines. The wine, grapes will taste you know thin and watery.
0: What other things do you do to make the the product the the grapes the fruit delicious to begin with? Well, as I
1: started in the beginning, the the soil selection and the microclimate selection so you're selecting a site just like you pick a site for your home you're looking at the you want it to have a good climate throughout the season and you want to have good soils and if you pick good soils then you don't need to irrigate long term you don't need to fertilize at all the vines we have up there haven't been irrigated or fertilized in 20 years and they're 30 year old vines but you don't have to add anything so that's the best the The best path is finding a site that has really good soils and a really good climate mm-hmm. and then you're not in an uphill battle just constantly having to water oh uh, yes yeah, yeah. correct
0: plant. exactly like doing fertilizer yeah mm-hmm.
1: so the so the selection of the site the selection um determine it will make it easier to farm and the wine quality resulting will be higher uh uh-huh. so you've got a. Uh, a combination of yeah, microclimate, soil, and then of course all of the stuff that we do—the cultural, you know, human influence. You know, how you prune mm. is very important. Pruning yeah. a vine is like the is like the foundation of a
0: building. You know, uh-huh. if, you, if you start. I love this. A, like you're really intertwining the home side foundation <laughs> of the building. This is really you know, like for our listeners who love designs. This is going to be like yeah. right in the sweet spot.
1: Well, you can imagine a you can imagine a vine has you know, all of these shoots and, and, you know, canes from the year before, you're mm-hmm. pruning it back over mm-hmm. here. And every time you prune it back, you're selecting every bud is, is is laid out and you have a cane that you lay out. We do cane pruning. So you basically yeah. take that shoot that used to be up vertical and you lay it down onto a wire mm-hmm. and it's called bilateral. So it's two canes or three two canes, canes per plant or t- Yeah, per two or vine. three two. per vine and each yeah. vine will well, in each every six eight inches there'll be a bud and each bud will be a new shoot that pops up yeah so you as you prune you're laying the foundation yeah. for what that vine will be looking like how many buds will translate to how much how many clusters how many uh-huh. bunches of grapes each shoot will have one two or three bunches of grapes
0: off of it um you know this must be a Exactly one of those situations where you can read the book, you know you can you have a strategy, but do you execute and everybody probably uh, who's making good wines uh, uses this, but you know that some people are doing it doing great wines. Yeah. It must be all the things combined. yeah how many clusters are you looking for out of each vine?
1: Well, it depends it's similar to you know architecture design it depends on, how uh, what the spacing of the vines so ah. you can have a um the vines could are, are in a on a grid obviously and you've got like a large wide spacing would be six feet between the vines mm. and then nine feet be- between the rows so you yeah. can imagine these rows going down and the vines are spaced for in this case six feet between mm-hmm. and so you've got three feet on each side as the, in a, on a bilateral cane system so you're stretching mm-hmm. out the cane one way and the other so you've mm-hmm. got about Three feet to stretch on either way. Mm-hmm. That's six, and then nine feet would be where you drive your tractor down the row, right? So it's, it's nine feet. That's pretty wide spacing. Well, and then four by eight would be tighter spacing. Oh, okay. Three by would be a meter. You know, three by yeah. six would be really tight spacing. And I've use, seen these
0: um, in Hillsburg. So we have this place in Hillsburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen these tinier, or the skinnier tractors. Yes, I've seen older vineyards have like wide. It must be the nine. Exactly. And then what's the? Are they going to the eight? And, and
1: They're going like like uh, meter by meter in some cases. Some some cases it's three by three feet. Or three. You know, a lot of times those wide close spacings are about three or four feet between the vines, uh-huh. and then about six or seven or eight feet between the rows. So So it's like smaller tractors. And you need to have those little tractors. You actually need to get those ones with the track, you know, the actual tractor because a lot of the crawlers are called with the actual, you know, like army tractor. Yeah. yeah. Those those will actually go down the really narrow rows. They're very low profile so they don't tip over Uh with that wide, you know, with that narrow um, wheelbase. And you can get down these kind of steep hills and you could turn around on a dime. Yeah. You can come back up the hill and you're... Versus a wheeled tractor, it yeah. has you have to have a little more width, you know, wheelbase. Yeah. So we, yeah. So it's kind of funny because some people will actually put a build a vineyard and buy a tractor that's wider. And then they'll mm. just keep planting their vineyard based on that spacing because uh-huh. it That's, it's because they have the tractor. Exactly. Uh-huh. Or in the old days, they used to say, "Well, I like to be able to drive my pickup truck oh, <laughs> down right. the road to check oh, on check perfect. on yeah. to check on you know broken you know parts and such." Yeah. Like, and so they'll have they don't need to have the ten or twelve foot spacing, you know. So, yeah. but but now, yeah, the the kind of the best quality and efficiency of. of Land is you know about four by eight, four, four by seven spacing. Uh-huh. Um, of course, my father and, and my mother planted in 1988, 89. And it's six by nine, uh-huh. so you can drive your truck down my row. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's very nice. Do you have a uh, cool vineyard truck? <laughs> we had, we just have a GMC. Yeah, you know, but. you You don't have the 47 Ford (laughs) orange my my father used to have a big apple like a flatbed apple truck that used to be for harvesting apples Uh I forget the the brand but it was Mm. a nice old
0: truck but it was a lot of work keeping that truck oh yeah yeah
1: Oh, yeah, no, it's it. Uh,
0: do you I'm, have any uh, Cobb Winery swag? Like, we don't have the vintage truck that you park somewhere. Do you have a.
1: <laughs> we have a 4 by 4 like a uh, Kubota four wheeler. That's about it. No, we don't have much swag. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Shgetan. So, it's
1: all the rage. All right. <laughs> I'm going to have a license plate in but that's about um, it.
0: Let's see. What's next? I mean, so now you've laid the foundation. You've got clusters that depends on. Give me an idea. So in your vineyard, you are, no, well, whatever. So your vineyard, how many clusters are you looking for? And then, yep. and you're at uh, six by nine. Yeah. The people that are at four by eight. Yeah. Or f- you know. And we have a neighboring cluster sizes.
1: Yeah, we have a neighboring vineyard that we also um, work with, and it's it's four by eight, three uh-huh. by three and a half by seven. Uh-huh. So we have tighter spacing, yeah. it's called um, okay. vineyards as well, that we so work you with. you have to manage different. Yeah, and you need a different tractor. So I uh-huh. actually, um, need. I needed to hire someone that had a tractor that wasn't one of those crawlers so they could mm-hmm. actually manage that shorter, you know, the smaller um, spacing or uh, tighter spacing. So the number of clusters is basically dependent on the spacing. So I mean, if you have uh, close tighter spacing vines, you only have 18, 16 or 18 bunches per vine. 14, 16, 18 clusters per vine. So the mm-hmm. pruning, there's fewer buds. There's fewer. Uh, the canes are laid out, and they're shorter canes. Mm-hmm. And the, the wider spacing, you can actually ha- you have more space to lay out. So we can go. We can have 30, 35 oh, bunches wow. of grapes on the six by nine, and still have high quality, and it's not uh-huh. crowded. Wow. So a lot of it has to do with crowding and and spacing out the clusters so they're not bunched up together.
0: Um, Give me a size of a cluster.
1: It depends on the variety. Right now we're talking Pinot Noir. So yeah. Pinot Noir bunches can be between 45, which is on one of the shatter kind of very small yielding year, low yielding years,
0: like so 45 like, grams. You're just you're holding your hands up, and it looks like kind of a, I a like grapefruit a little, or like a pine, like, cone, pine cone, like okay. a small
1: pine cone. That's your cluster, and that's on wow. a that's a small Pinot Noir bunch. Now some Pinot Noir bunches can be up in you know 140 grams, uh-huh. and uh, we talk kind of in metric in the wine industry, yeah, like okay. a little more international yeah. um, system, as probably you do. Um, and it's uh, so we have you know 145 would be a monster for Pinot. You
0: know. So you're describing something that's uh, like, like more three like banana like, sizes, or yeah, know, like, like yeah, no,
1: I don't know what. Yeah, maybe like a bunch of bananas. That's would be like, like a, pretty big, like a small bunch of like small bananas. Those little. Um, or you know,
0: oh, oh, I'm using like plantains. other fruits, or I could just say a big cluster of wine, like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like a big one would be like a bottle of wine. There you go. Yeah, we go.
0: Yeah, well, that's a huge. The and then the one of those
1: little sp- 375, little half bottles that would be, a, you know, kind of a normal size. Much more there we go. Clear, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um it's, I was just thinking that your uh, your wine is in some pretty celebrated restaurants, no? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're can you tell us uh, some of those?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, the, when my father and mother and I started Cobb Wines in 2001, our vines were about 10 years old and we had seen William Selium Winery buying our grapes and they still buy a small block of our vineyard and selling um, the wines at, you know, $50, $60 a bottle Mm -hmm. and selling them in restaurants for $100, $120 a bottle. I was like, wow, that's that's pretty good business. So we, when we started Cobb Wines in 2001, we decided, okay, let's, we made 100 cases, 120 Mm -hmm. cases, which is five barrels. Mm -hmm. And we immediately just sold to as many restaurants as we could. We got 25 restaurants in California. Mm-hmm. My father and I put together a list of all the restaurants that we think we want our wines in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Boulevard here in San Francisco and Acarello and, you know, some of the great restaurants that are you know, still around, mm-hmm. still incredible restaurants. And, uh, and we built our customer base through restaurants. And our goal was let's sell to as many restaurants as we can, a couple shops for convenience. And then hopefully people will be drawn to our website and buy wines from us direct. Yeah. So you go to cobwines.com and you can buy wines all year round. Mm-hmm. But that's that was our plan was to start with this restaurant base and get mm-hmm. all the sommeliers and all the you know all the waiters and all the mm-hmm. customers comfortable and familiar with Cobb Wines mm-hmm. and start this buzz. And so that's what we started in 03 when our 01 was released. Mm-hmm. And now we're in about gosh about probably 500 restaurants. Around, around the world. And how many
0: cases do you produce a year now?
1: Only about 2,000. Uh-huh. Really small. Uh-huh. And we sell about half of that to restaurants and half of it on our website.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. And so you're here at Spruce Restaurant, aren't you? Yeah. 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 Uh, that's uh, my buddy, Tim Stenard. He was on a uh, podcast too. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. We did, a win-
1: we did a winemaker dinner there about a year ago. Right now, so It was great. Good time. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah They're ace you know yeah over there uh, so but uh, yeah again like uh, high compliments to you and uh, I was in a restaurant with uh, Matthew and he yeah. broke out the Cobb wine I think we had a couple of bottles I'm sure it was the Pinot yeah I'm sure it was old yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was like a brilliant uh,
1: year 2008 maybe yeah yeah, yeah. yeah some of our um, older wines are oh ones and oh twos the first vintages are still fresh and vibrant Jeez. Some, pe- some people think a Pinot Noir will gonna kind of fall apart and you know age ungracefully Uh in you know seven to eight years but our wines at 17 18 years are still fresh and vital and what are
0: the what are the variety um what are the wines that really last the longest
1: well the 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 wine that it depends it depends on the climate and the soil and the and the winemaking because that'll determine kind of the health of the wine it's just like Building a house right yeah, you know, a house. how what how long was a foundation gonna last you know right? well depends on if did you but it'll build a house in the sand or yeah know, a bedrock yeah, yeah. and so all of the the base will determine the ageability of the wine mm-hmm. and so, um, chemist the chemistry of, of wine is pH most based mostly so if you have a, a very acidic wine which means a low pH Basically, wine can be between 3 and 4 pH, roughly. Okay. A uh, 3 would be a really acidic Riesling from, you know, Germany. Okay. A, you know, super cold climate. Uh-huh. Sub 3, maybe 2.9. Uh-huh. And those wines, that acidity and a tiny bit of sulfite for, you know, for as a preservative, that wine will last for 100 years. Wow. I mean, they have wines from Bordeaux, the really great acidic Bordeaux or great, you know... Uh, fresh, well-made Burgundies or Alsatian wines, you know, all from uh, Northeast France. Wow! These wines will, even these red wines, will last over a hundred years, and they'll they'll be pretty earthy at the end. Yeah. But um, so basically, acidity will really determine the ageability of a wine.
0: Longevity, sure.
1: A lot of people think alcohol will help with you know with that like uh-huh. a port. If you have an eighteen percent alcohol port, you know, dessert wine, that alcohol kind of Pickles or preserves the wine, but the problem is, is when you're at like 14 or 15, there's not enough alcohol to preserve it for the long haul, but it's still alcoholic. So uh, what I've uh, found is, let's let's try to make wines that are maybe 13, 13 and a half percent alcohol, but really good acidity. Versus what 15, 16. Yeah, yeah. As I did read that. Do, so
0: you you make them a little less uh, alcohol content. Yeah. It's for preservation, for taste, for. That's your jam, or
1: yeah. why? Well, this is a big, big conversation, so oh, is it fair with me? Whoa,
0: here. let's get some water here. Yeah. Hold on, a sip of water. <laughs> <laughs> more coffee? Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Coffee. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so the um the the and this has all happened naturally for me. Literally, I haven't read a book or had conversations with you know Hans or something. There's no like, there's no what like, guiding light. It's just something I've learned just yeah. by doing it. Yeah. You know, And um, most of my knowledge is empirical. It's just by learning, by Mm -hmm. making mistakes, and having conversations, and drinking wine, and and reflecting Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. So what I've learned over time is that when you pick a a Pinot Noir, for example, use Pinot Noir in this example, it's mostly what I make. If you pick a Pinot Noir grape at, say, 23 bricks, which is basically um, temperature, it's a um, measure of sugar Mm -hmm. percentage. So Mm -hmm. it's... If you have a bricks of twenty three or percent brick bricks of twenty three, it converts about to about thirteen to thirteen five percent alcohol. Uh-huh. It's about a point five eight five to point six f- factor from sugar to alcohol. Uh-huh. So you're trying to say you're this making a wine. This is science. Everyone who's listening yes. right now, he just broke
0: down <laughs> science. That was yeah.
1: awesome. The factor is about point five eight five is what I use, and so the conversion. So if you have an alcohol that's at thirteen five. Uh-huh. The wine is going to be a lot more palatable. It's you're going to be able to drink yeah. it with food. It's not going to overpower food. Yeah. And so, thirteen five Pinot Noir, thirteen five alcohol Pinot Noir can go well with
0: everything. And I mean, so, was normally Pinot is at uh, sixteen? Is that
1: no? Well? Most I think the average is probably in the industry from a California Pinot Noir. Uh-huh. Let's just say from the let's just call it a Sonoma County Pinot Noir. Yeah. The average is probably fourteen two. Okay. okay. A little, bit higher, but like little bit higher. A little bit higher. That
0: little bit really matters?
1: But, like, when you get up into 14.2 and above, it becomes a little sweeter, not necessarily uh-huh. sugar sweet, but it, the alcohol and the glycerols, which is that kind of the texture of the wine, it start, starts to taste more sweet. Uh-huh. And um, so when you're getting it, when you're in that 13.5, it's just, it still has, the it still tastes like the wine. It doesn't taste like a, a liqueur. Like, it doesn't have uh, yeah. that kind of sweet kind yeah. of, uh, sweet uh, impression. So, first I've noticed is the wines of like thirteen five are really fresh and they they have uh, they they age well, but it's also just really food friendly and fresh. The yes. second factor is the pH, you know, the acidity. So yeah. if you have a if you're picking the grapes a little bit earlier, less ripe, there's more acidity, meaning the pH is yeah. lower.
0: And that's what you do,
1: and that's what I do. And then the yeah. wine will end up aging a lot longer, right? And then the other side of it, the third, is that when you have a wine that's that's more fresh and ferments clean, there's less oxygen and there's less aldehydes. And aldehydes are created when the wine is in contact with oxygen. So, what so is the about the process? Exactly. You, so,
0: um, it's so. What do you have to do? For a so the process,
1: yeah. So the process of winemaking, there's anaerobic winemaking, and which is basically you're trying to keep it under carbon dioxide in its early stages. You can imagine picking, you know, lettuce at the market and immediately putting it into like a CO2 fresh. You know, with misters like they do in the supermarket yeah. already, but you can imagine keeping it under CO carbon dioxide. Uh-huh. That'll keep it from oxidizing. So we do the same thing in in high end winemaking, anaerobic. We'll we'll pick the grapes. We'll pick them at night, so it's cold. Get out. Yep. Immediately with headlamps.
0: Get out. Yep.
1: We pick it at night. It's actually a lot more safe. It's cool, and there's no there's no Trans- shadowing um, from the sun, and there's no the heat, and so the fruit comes out. in can imagine being out in Bodega Bay at four in the morning it's cold it's 51 degrees Wow so the grapes come into the winery at sunrise and they're 50 degrees so they're already pre-cooled for us
0: does anybody else do most
1: people a lot of people are are switching to that when they really it's a little it's a little tricky because they people worry about picking at night and the and the kind of safety with the workers and lights and having to what we found over time is really good halogen headlamps um some good batteries go to costco and you just stock up on the right brand
0: uh and
1: the and it's actually a lot better working conditions because it's cool this you're not working in the sun and the fruit is cooler so you don't have to refrigerate the hell out of the fruit when it gets to the winery. it's already pre pre pre-chilled yeah so that's a big part of it then once it gets into the winery you can imagine this as soon as we start cutting the fruit off you know distemming the fruit or if we're doing a whole bunch as soon as we're putting it into the fermentation vat we're layering Uh it with carbon dioxide Uh so we're taking it from a cool environment and then immediately putting it under carbon dioxide Uh and then it lets it sits there for six seven days Uh cool under carbon dioxide and that keeps the fruit from browning you can imagine when Mm -hmm. you have a a apple that you cut and leave it on your counter it turns Mm -hmm. brown Well, it's the same thing with grapes if you as soon as you kind of damage or slightly you know break the skins of the grape it uh-huh. starts to brown so yeah. the key to having making a fresh wine and one, a wine that will age a long time too
0: I is more wine nice. right now this is crazy I mean, it's making you thirsty so I don't good know.
1: <laughs> so that's the key is like that kind of the handling right the handling yes. of carbon dioxide and then during the process we're keeping it under argon or nitrogen or co2 to keep it fresh whenever we move the wine from one barrel to a tank and back to barrel we're keeping it anaerobic Mm -hmm. That keeps the wine from uh, converting alcohol into aldehydes. And aldehydes is kind of that nutty, oxidized... Like when a wine sits on your counter Mm -hmm. open and you're like, ooh, that smells old, that's Mm -hmm. basically aldehydic. And what's happened is the wine is... Is con- the alcohol is converted to aldehydes, and aldehydes is actually what gives you a hangover, and actually it attacks your liver. So, aldehydes are really are bad. Are bad. <laughs> and I, if, if you've ever been into your vitamin shop and you've asked, you know, the specialist, which I did years ago, you know, okay, I drink wine every day, what, and he's like, oh, you need to take this. This will scavenge the aldehydes, that, so your body, your body won't be it. You'll get a, it'll reduce the hangover effect number one, but it'll also Reduce the um, the attack on your liver from the aldehydes.
0: Right on, that's cool. So
1: making a wine that's fresh, lower at pH, like I'm saying, lower alcohol. Well, you can drink more wine because it's lower alcohol. Yeah,
0: it
1: sounds obvious. Like yeah. I I like to drink five percent alcohol Pilsner. Uh-huh. I don't like to drink eight percent alcohol. You know, Pliny the Elder, which is very yeah. popular. You know. The, yeah. But that those wa- those wa- beers, I can't have more than one beer and I'm tipsy. Yeah. You know. So. You can drink more of these wines, you can enjoy more wines at yeah, yeah. this lower alcohol. And then the lower pH will actually extend the life because this is tricky. There's the molecular sulfite, which is the, the actual sulfur dioxide that you use as a preservative. Some people think they're allergic to sulfite. Some people, no most oh, yeah. people aren't. But uh-huh. typically the sulfite level can be minimal, like 10 times less use of sulfite when the pH is low. So uh-huh. if you have a pH of 3, you add, you can add 10 parts per million.
0: Uh-huh. If
1: a pH of 4, you need like 80 parts per million. So to do the, to to uh, protect the wine the same.
0: Well, people say the sulfides also give them, you know, a headache the next day. Yeah. Is that well, true?
1: Well, that's the fourth fourth component. It's actually histamines that often cause the headache. Histamines like you take an antihistamine for, uh-huh. you know, for allergies, like right yeah. now I've got you know, pretty bad allergies. You mm-hmm. You can take antihistamines to counteract the histamines. Uh, the same thing with wine. A lot of wines that are kind of cheaply made or poorly made or uh, kind of half-hazardly made will 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 um, have histamines, and histamines are produced during the ferment, during the fermentation process. Uh, and it, and I won't go into why because it's really complicated, and I get lost trying to explain it myself. But basically, uh, some wines have higher histamine levels than others my wines actually tend to have very low histamines and it has to do with a very clean um tidy cellar and tidy wine making yeah and that that'll produce a wine that has lower histamines which div- doesn't get you a headache most people think it's sulfites but it's usually histamines
0: can you describe what you're wanting your wines to taste like <laughs> or does it yeah. do you start with the end in mind uh, and work backwards or is it you're just getting the, the best out of, you know, yeah. and letting it do its thing.
1: Yeah, I'm, my main focus, aside from all this technical stuff, with histamines and aldehydes and yeah. alcohol and sulfites, my 99% of what I focus on when I'm making a wine is the aroma. Ah. And so I don't really focus on the palate or the, the acidity. Which is kind of odd because talking talking Because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but pH and acidity are kind of different. Oh, okay. There's titratable there's t- acidity, which is like the tartness, and then acidity uh, uh, was just uh-huh. like just the pH, but okay, not okay, necessarily okay. the tart- okay. tartness. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're related but not the same. So when I'm making a wine from the freshness of the climate, meaning in the soils, I can actually look at a vineyard. If you were to bring me out, you know my, my brother's got a vineyard in, you know, in wherever. Yeah. Uh In Healdsburg can you check it out give me your opinion of the vineyard I can walk into the vineyard with you and within a couple minutes I can pretty much close my eyes and 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 imagine what it smell, what the wine will smell like from the vineyard Wow and the wine is going to actually be very fruity very green Uh Um, and so you can kind of determine based on the the fertility of the of the soil and the uh-huh. and the and the kind of fertility of the vines, like if they're growing like crazy or mm-hmm. if they're in balance. So a vine that's in balance is going to, it's not going to be too fruity, it's not going to be too green. It's going to be right in, in a balance of kind of the earthy aromas and the the Fruit. green aromas and the fruity aromas yeah. and the acidity, of course. So the the health of the wow. soil, the climate, the microclimates throughout the year will all determine. The style of the wine when we're talking Pinot Noir. So basically, I make wine based on aroma. So I'll pick a site, and I can imagine looking at the soils, and I have a soil, you know, science background. I can imagine the soils, how they're going, how the vines are going to grow. If we haven't planted yet, uh-huh. if we have planted, I'm looking at the vine, I'm looking at the shoots, I'm looking at the length between the buds, and you can determine how fertile this vineyard is. Uh-huh and i'm but i'm making wines based on aroma so when i make a wine where we're cut you know we're harvesting it when we're keeping it fresh under the carbon dioxide we're you know you know managing it throughout the um the wine making process i'm basically making wines based on aroma and um i love when I mean, you have these big glasses that people you know invest in these big yeah. riddles or whatever and you're. You basically, I'll sit there and smell wine. You, that's the biggest stereotype of winemakers is that they'll sit there and just swirl and smell a glass and not even taste it for like 20 right. minutes. And it's kind of a, a joke, but it's actually the what we do because I'm, I'm actually looking and smelling the wine and that's, I'm, I'm dissecting the aromas of the wine because it's reflecting on all the stuff that was done so either no, some other winemaker or yourself. So
0: riddle me this, um, riddle maker... But, you know, people are like, oh, I smell apple yes. and walnut. Yes. There's nothing near us. Yes. Like, how does it smell like okay, all those so, crazy distress? So there,
1: there's actually the, the aromas of, of the actual compound of banana is made in a Chardonnay, in a warmer climate. Chardonnay. Uh-huh. There's actually tropical fruits, you know, guava and you know, pineapple and banana. Those actual, if you take that compound of that banana, you know, a banana extract uh-huh. from the lab, that aroma exists in Chardonnay grown in a certain climate, in a certain soil, and the winemaking of a certain, you know, type of Got selection. It. So the, when you sell it, and when you say it smells, or when I say it smells like raspberry, uh-huh. or, or, you know, cassis, or blackberry, or, you know, guava, all those aromas, those actual compounds exist in the grape. And that's mm-hmm. what's really interesting about Pinot Noir, is it, it actually can, it almost... And I was explaining to to my ten year old when she was you know five, like because oh, she had the same question, like do you add raspberries and cherries? It's great because <laughs> he keeps like suggesting, bottle it, yeah. you know, in there. And she was like, "I'm going to make way better wine than you, Dad. I'm going to add raspberries and cherries." And, <laughs> and so, smart. The, but the the actual compound of raspberry, the actual aroma of, of a raspberry is in Pinot Noir, or is wow. so those those. So when we're talking about those aromas, they actually exist. Okay. We're not just making it up although a lot of times it's it's almost subjective you're like really do you really smell that is like, i don't I smell t- that right now I, I have had like like a know.
0: terrible nose remember it one time that's my excuse like, yeah. i'm like i don't know it just
1: doesn't work yeah you could probably get, get, in get in it there. drilled out or something you know hope like some <laughs> there's, sure there's a, a doctor down at the, <laughs> the us i can do that for you yeah there's a new facility too actually if you if you see me wearing glasses what i didn't bring mine is you, i actually have a broken nose right you can see mm-hmm. it's like Mm. I actually had a, an empty wine barrel, which only weighs about you know eighty pounds but still had it fall off of one of the metal racks onto my my forehead and broke my nose when I was twenty two or thirty two uh-huh. and uh it didn't affect my nose if anything, maybe
0: it I created like, this <laughs> monster <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is uh
1: it is still functions, but yeah, no you have to be careful of your nose
0: so you are starting with the the end um in mind and that you want to pull out the best aroma yep that's your that's your goal and like other are other are levers you can pull or is it pretty much all predetermined uh you know from the season from the growing and yeah. obviously from the soil and yep. the climate i mean yeah see so is you, there any like thing you can do to modify it in the in the final stages, definitely. I okay. mean,
1: that's that's the enology or the wine chemistry of, of you know how how do you, how can you manipulate the the wine process to, and usually, that that the techniques or the you know the wine tweaking mm-hmm. is is done to kind of to kind of ward off a fault or a you know you've gone down the wrong path. Oh, right. like if it if starts it's to correct, smell like you know like yeah. rotten egg or you know so when the wine starts to go south on you, you can you can use um winemaking techniques. The, when you're when you start with a good grape, you know, good climate, you know, all the variables, you pick mm-hmm. it at the optimal time, at the right, you know, in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. You bring it to the winery and the optimal da-da-da. Typically you don't need to do anything. You don't need to tweak it. You don't need to like mm-hmm. pout, you know, feather in this or add this or tweak it this way. You can just let it you just basically it's more of a mechanical process where you're like wow. stirring it properly like you're stirring your soup you forgot to stir your soup you know it's like you basically can mess it up or if you're on the yeah. ball you so you're basically stirring it and turning over the grapes as they're fermenting which is called punching down and then you can um you know you can pump over which is mean you know, pumping the juice over and over do you
0: so um, so the purest is uh, the pure way the way you'd like it to be is everything's perfect mm-hmm. and there's no corrective courses do you uh do you or sometimes a corrective course is just as good. I've got an example I'm gonna use. Yeah. i shall go ahead and tell you. So like sometimes we'll be doing um, a furnishing project mm-hmm. and you know, we, maybe we're using someone's mother's console, yeah. right? But it's too small for the wall. Yeah. But then we add you know, something larger like, like a plant and the appropriately sized artwork above it so we collapse the area. Yep. So it doesn't feel undersized or underscaled, yep. because we've done something else, which in the end is arguably just as beautiful. It means something more because we use some of these uh, heirloom, you know. Uh, but we could have just as easily done it if we started from scratch with nothing. Yeah. But I don't know that they're any different. They're both just be- beautiful and will feel, feel good. Is that the same, or is it just? It's always better to, you know, never have to course correct.
1: Well, the, if you could. If you look at the, the process of winemaking from the selection of the vine, you know, the site and how you manage the vines to the fermentation, the temperature of mm-hmm. the fermentation, you're, you're pressing it at a certain pressure, you're transferring it to the barrels, you're aging it in certain type of barrels. I could go on for a half hour about barrels. Uh-huh. That's a whole thing. But each of those variables adds up to the, the end. Mm. So each step, you can't really mess it up that bad Uh, but but each one kind of guides you along the way just like you know everything and then at the end if you've done a really accurate job but based on your intuition all the way through there at the end you've got a wine like wow that's outstanding yeah like hold that man but if you if something went kind of sideways along the ways then at the end product you might go hmm, like that smells a little you know and, and so you, so you, want, you do want to like yeah each each part of the process affects the end product, yeah
0: um so this this time's gone so fast, we do kind of do a uh I like listeners to have like a little pod snack, I mean, I've got questions I didn't even get to, but I, I do want to ask you a couple more sure. like uh, is there anything new you're working on, is there anything new that's cool at Cobb um, wine, you know incorporated I don't know is it what, are you, are, yeah. what anything new
1: yeah well the um, the obviously the vineyards are the anything new in the vineyards is probably the most exciting uh-huh. um, so I have, I have a couple new Chardonnay vineyards that I started working with um, okay. in the area and I make a little bit of Chardonnay very wow. like European style very white burgundy style crisp not Oaky and buttery, yeah. and not a lot of tropical fruit. Was, very cool climate Chardonnay. Can I interrupt you just because, yeah. like,
0: I've noticed this over the maybe four or five years. It doesn't take long to turn white wines, right? Because they yeah. kind of consumed earlier. Uh, but you know the, the the amount of time we used to hear five and eight years ago. Like oh, is it Chardonnay? Oh, I just don't deal with it. It's too buttery, you yeah, know. Yes. And I like the Seven in Blanc because it's crisp. But now you taste the Chardonnay, and it's like everyone got the message. Yes. They're crisp and neat and light. Yes. Is that true? It's true.
1: Yeah. And it, and every once in a while, I'll I'll meet someone that's like, oh, I just love that buttery oaky Chardonnay. I'm <gasps> like, okay, so it's you know <laughs> so we don't want to like swing all the way in one direction because yeah, there true. are people that like it's that true. richness and and it, basically the Chardonnay, the crisp. Light, lighter, more Sauvignon Blanc style Chardonnay. We say Chablis, region of Burgundy, is is that spectrum. And then the southern part of Burgundy, down going into like where you know, um, um, Lyon, you know, down in the Beaujolais area, the southern part of Burgundy, those wines smell like Carneros Chardonnay or like Uh Anapa Chardonnay. There's that riper, richer, and the oak and the and that butteriness Uh is all a, a reflection of of the climate that the chardonnay is grown in yeah. and some of the wine making as well but yeah. the winemaking can emphasize and exact ex- kind of accentuate some of those buttery oaky tropical aromas when the chardonnay is grown in a warmer area so basically what people have done is they've started to grow grow chardonnay in cooler areas uh-huh. maybe picking a little bit fresher a little less oh, ripe yeah and maybe using yeah. a little less new oak And then all that spectrum goes from that kind of buttery, oaky, tropical spectrum into more of a crisp. And there's people that love both sides. So you just want to you want to make wine. I want to make a wine that that I love to drink, and then hopefully people will follow and and agree with me because you can try to follow trends, but if you really want to make wines
0: that you love. Well, wasn't there the trend? uh, Maybe there was some movie that killed Merlot. Right. There was nothing wrong with Merlot. It's such a beautiful wine. I know. I I actually love Merlot. (laughs) Merlot is a great variety. What was that movie? Sideways. That? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know It
1: was context. a Peter Noir based movie, but it was Noir <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: okay. Um Oh yeah, but you were saying it, it new stuff you're working on like yeah. consulting with So a little bit of Chardonnay yeah. for
1: this is for Cobb. This is for Cobb still. Oh, cool. And um, in the uh, also Riesling. I'm making a small amount of Riesling from Mendocino County, from Anderson Valley. All oh, the way killer. out near Rotor Estate and West um, Anderson yeah. Valley, Riesling, beautiful, I like. I beautiful like. Riesling. It's a dry style, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a crisp, dry style, and it'll age forever, as I mentioned earlier. Uh-huh. And it also uh, tastes great when it's young. So yeah, 16 17 18 vintages of Riesling from Cobb vonnerberg Vineyard are new. So I'm just, I want to try to convince someone to plant Riesling in that kind of the best climate, best soils, because no one's planted Riesling in these kind of cool coastal like regions. Like in your
0: area, around yeah. where you're where Everyone planted and Pinot,
1: and uh-huh. they, a lot of people had Chardonnay, and they they said, so Chardonnay, yeah. you can only get such and such per ton of uh, grapes, yeah. so we're going to replant it mm. to Pinot Noir. So now there's a, a shortage of Chardonnay grown in those really good areas, and there's no Riesling. I mean, it's like mm. the one cool Riesling vineyard that I knew about in my neighborhood was grafted over to Pinot because it was more economical. So, uh-huh. it's, so Riesling is a really great variety and it's it's one of the noble like you know from Germany and Alsace it's one of the great varieties uh when it's grown in a good climate and soil So, so I think yeah so part of my kind of growth of Cobb would be continuing to work on these great coastal Pinot Noir vineyards trying to find small vineyards that are incredible including you know expanding my own little vineyard a little bit and then Chardonnay
0: and then Riesling
1: and that's that's I think that's do you make a of and then make red
0: besides Pinot?
1: For Cobb, no, it's all yeah. Pinot Noir. I made a, okay. a Zinfandel one year that I never released uh, commercially. It's just kind of a home wine. I made, uh-huh. And it was from the Hellenthal Vineyard right next to Hirsch Vineyard. And I just bottled up 50 cases of it. It was one row of Pinot Noir next to the uh-huh. Hellenthal Pinot Noir. Uh, one row of Zinfandel next to the Hellenthal Pinot Noir. Uh-huh. And so that's the only red I've done outside of Pinot Noir for Cobb. But I do consult. I've, I work with Annaba Winery, and I make uh, Rhone varieties: Grenache, uh, Syrah, Petit Syrah, and Turbine a white and a Turbine red, which is a blend of Rhone whites and Rhone mm-hmm. reds. And um, we also do a little bit of uh, Grenache Blanc and Picpoul with Annaba Winery. And then we have Reeve Wines. My friend Katie Wilson and I are co-winemakers for Annaba Reeve. Mm. And Reeve, we're doing Sangiovese, we're doing mm. Riesling as well, some mm. from that same Vonneberg vineyard. Uh, we're doing um, Merlot, we're doing um, lots of Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay as well for do Reeve. You don't, you don't get bored, do you? No, no. We're making about 19 varieties right now between. And the, the third project outside of Cobb is Claypool Cellars. We're doing um, 900 cases of, of Pinot Noir and a Rosé Pinot Noir. And that's Les Claypool, famous oh, yeah. musician. Oh, okay. Primus, uh, oh, yeah, Primus yeah. guy. He's a neighbor of ours up in Occidental. Oh, right on. He has a is family winemaker called a, Claypool uh, Cellars. Oh,
0: that's a guy. Right on.
1: He's, pool, he, now he's working with Sean Lennon, the Delirium. Oh. The, the Sean, uh, the Lennon, um, uh, Claypool Lennon Delirium project. They're on tour. Oh, cool. Really good. You should check out record out. I'll do The it. latest record is awesome. But yeah, but, but Cobb Wines is my main thing. I manage and make the wine and Run in the vineyards and do the sales. <laughs> that's 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 90% of my bandwidth is the, just yeah. running a small
0: family winery. Cool, man. Well, uh, I, you've made me so thirsty for beautiful <laughs> wine, and you've taught me how to uh, appreciate wine in a, in a much bigger way. I love the process, articulation, and you're certainly um, a star among men with this process. Thank you. you great Good. reputation. Good to meet you as being well. Being a great uh, winemaker. So, okay, my last question for you is this. Um, and i ask everybody this question. What is your favorite room in your house and why? Where you live. What's your favorite, you know, room? My dining room. Mm-hmm. I've got a
1: big dining room table. Um, overlooks the you know the vineyard the outside oh, yeah. and the ocean and that's where I go that's when I, I set my laptop down there and that's my office uh-huh. that's our that's the craft table for my ten-year-old daughter Kennedy uh-huh. that's our you know that's where we have dinner that's where we have breakfast and mm-hmm. the, the the dining room table right there and up in Occidental it's right now I probably spend aside from sleeping you know yeah all yeah. my home time yeah. when I'm inside
0: yeah cool man We're rocking. thanks for coming We'll run it back again one day. Please.